Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, we are going to begin. Six o'clock on the dot. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians 4.13. We will begin there in just a few moments. But tonight... Um, the rest of these, we're going to cover three, three scriptures or three verses in one setting, but um, tonight we're just going to do two because I want to devote the first part of this to a little bit of an introduction as uh, to what this study is all about. Um, and so that gets us to the nature of the problem. What does it mean for something to be out of context? Well, literally out of place, um, not taking into account what is around it, whether it's a text or a person. Uh, or whatever it is. If you look at, um, Anna, Anna watches these things on YouTube, or she used to, and sometimes there'd be these, you know, one of these doesn't belong, or there'd be a pattern, one of these doesn't go, because the thing was out of context, it wasn't where it was supposed to be, or it was in a place with other things that were not like it. So what does that have to do with scripture? What does it mean to take a verse? Hey, make sure I get a handout, Robinson's <laughs> handouts. I like your shirt, though. What does it mean to take scripture, um, a passage, a verse, out of context? I think most of these we're going to look at are just one verse. I think there's one that is uh, one or two verses, but most of these are just one verse. Well, that gets us to the heart of the problem about uh, biblical literacy. What the number one problem with this is biblical and theological illiteracy. And this isn't meant to insult Christians or to insult you if you come in here and you are uh, maybe not as versed in the Bible as you should be. No, this is supposed to help us uh, get, get over biblical and theological illiteracy. But we have to acknowledge that this is a problem, not just in our society. It's easy to throw stones at society and say that they don't care for the word, they don't care for the Bible, they don't care for church. Um, but it's also something we have to address as Christians. And each individual church has to address uh, biblical and theological illiteracy within their churches, Sunday school class, amongst our staff, pastors, and not just here, uh, but across the nation and across the world in modern Christianity. And one of the reasons we have such biblical and theological illiteracy is that we want to avoid controversy or division. Uh, a good motive, right? We don't want unnecessary division. We don't want unnecessary conflict and sometimes theological conversations or debates or, or biblical interpretation talks or debates, those can lead to something that to some people seems like division or conflict. When uh, Brother Philip might have a certain view on a passage and uh, Sister Jennifer might have a certain view on a passage. I forgot you are family. And <laughs> y'all have probably had these debates, right? And, and there's, there's uh, debate, there's disagreement. And some people would look at that, especially within the church or a Sunday school class, and say that is division, that's conflict, and we don't need that. And so they throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, so to avoid division in the church or to avoid conflict, 
we're not going to talk about maybe some contentious Bible passages or theological topics. Uh, And that has led to us uh, having a biblical and theological illiteracy. So, for many Christians, the Bible becomes nothing more than a book of sayings. It becomes a collection of sayings, proverbs, that we can just go to a verse, pluck it out, apply it to whatever we want to apply it to, and make it mean whatever we need it to mean in the moment. So the Bible becomes sayings, proverbs, uh, slogans, or wise sayings. Sometimes when we approach the Bible or verse, we have no concept of its genre, its location. This is why I'm always honest about our physical Bibles, to understand where in the canon, that is the collection of Scripture, where in the Bible we are. Are we in the Old Testament? Are we in the New Testament? Are we in the Gospels? Are we in the law, poetry, prophecy? You know, where are we in the genre of Scripture that maybe informs how we're going to interpret what we're about to read and what we're going to study? Um, Who's the author? Who's the audience? Um, So verses can sometimes get plucked out of place and forced or shoehorned into any context or meaning. And you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Isn't, isn't the word the word? Aren't the words of Scripture the Scripture? Well, the big deal is this. The meaning of the text is the text. The meaning of the text is the text. If you are married, if you have friends, <laughs> if you're not a loser, I'm just picking. If you, you work with people, you have staff that works with you, and you have to communicate with someone or other people often, you know this to be true, and I'm going to tell you how. Let's imagine, purely imaginative setting, that I say something that Pastor Matt misunderstands. Purely imaginative. Or Pastor Matt says something that I misinterpret, right? If I misinterpret something that Pastor Matt says, have I rightly understood what Matt is saying? No. Is he saying what I think he's saying? No. So we have to understand, even though I heard the words... Or even though you hear the words, we have to understand what the meaning of the words are in context, or we're making a meaning up. So when it comes to scripture, the meaning of the text is the text. So I can't just say words of scripture, and they mean what God intended them to mean. We have to understand what they actually mean. The bigger deal is this, twisting scripture in itself is satanic. And I want you to understand why I say this. When you look at the Gospels, one of the first stories we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the temptation of Jesus. The devil comes to Jesus three times, and the devil doesn't try to make up his own words, does he? What does the devil quote to Jesus? Scripture. Out of context, out of place, misapplied, and it's evil. In that context, the devil is using evil words to tempt the Lord Jesus. Thankfully, for our salvation, Jesus, those three times, corrects the devil's misinterpretation and misapplication. So we have to be careful that we're not intentionally or unintentionally twisting a verse or passage to mean something that it does not mean. Because if we really think about it, that is Satan's tactic. Think back to the Garden of Eden. When Eve was being tempted by the devil, what did the devil say to her? Did God really say? 
And he begins to kind of quote God, but he leaves things out. He adds things in, taking God's words out of context and making them into his evil purposes. So we have to take steps to rightly understand a passage or a verse. We have to take steps to properly understand Scripture for what we're reading to actually be Scripture and not just something we're concocting in the moment. So let's talk about some um, easy steps to begin with. Where to start? As you approach a topic, as you approach a passage or a verse, as we begin new sermon series, as we did Sunday, we, we put some of this into practice. Let's understand first who is the author. Who wrote the passage? Is it Paul, Peter, John, Matthew, Moses, David? Because as you can see, depending on who wrote it, they're bringing in their experiences, they're bringing in their stories, their understanding and their um, relationship with God, they're bringing that into the picture. So Paul saying something is different than Peter or James or John or Moses or David or any of the other authors of Scripture who wrote the passage or verse that is in question. The audience, who were the original hearers? Now, you're going to see as we get to the Gospel of Matthew, the audience can be sort of tricky. Who was the author writing to? Who was his intended audience? Or in the story, if someone is speaking, who are they speaking to? So you'll often hear preachers and teachers uh, and commentators reference the hearers, the original hearers, not just the audience, but the hearers. Uh, This we talked about already, genre, what type of literature is it? Is it intended to be poetic? In that case, we bring certain interpretational tools into the equation. Is it intended to be um, apocalyptic, like Revelation, or passages in Daniel and Ezekiel with visions and and weird signs and symbols in in these visions and dreams? Uh, Is it intended to be history, where literal historical events are being narrated for us? I, I call that, we call that narrative. Is it telling a story that happened? Is it parable? Is it wisdom? Is it, is it music like the psalm? Is it intended to be that? Uh, we have to understand the genre. The setting. What is going on at the time of the writing? What is the biblical setting? Again, where does this fit in the canon or the whole range of Scripture? Um, maybe for Israel, we're looking at a, a particular national event in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. Uh, a, a particular king that is ruling, or a nation that is invading, or a judgment that is promised. We have to look at those things. What's going on in the world? You know, oftentimes when you hear preachers address the epistles in the New Testament, as we did Sunday morning, you might introduce, uh, introduce Thessalonica, the city, and say, what's going on in the world at that time? Or the city of Corinth, or Ephesus, uh, or wherever it is. And here are some of the, the, the larger concepts we're going to look at, especially tonight. Uh, with our verses what are the main themes what are the main themes in the verse the passage the chapter the entire book that we're looking at what are the main themes because that will help us understand what one part of that book or passage means then we can do the work of interpretation and by interpretation I mean what did it mean then When the Philippians got their letter from Paul, what did Paul, talking to the Philippian Christians in Philippi, what did he mean when he wrote that 
then? How did they take it? What was it meant to convey to them? Okay, or Moses or Jesus uh, or anyone else. And only after understanding what it meant then do we go into the practice of application. What can we take away? That makes sense? We, we understand what Paul was saying to the Philippians, and then we take that as the word of God and say, that's what it meant then. What is there for me to learn from that now? You might hear someone say it. What did it mean then? And then we can ask, what does it mean now? So there's just some good places uh, on where to start, and we'll sum it up this way. Ask first, what does this passage or verse mean? Then, what can we take away from this passage? So in these four summer studies that we're going to go through, uh, we're going to go through, through four sets of verses or passages that are often misinterpreted or misused, and, and we're going to apply those very steps with each verse or each passage. And we're going we're gonna to ask ourselves, does our interpretation of that change? Does maybe how I've used that verse or understood that passage in the past, does it change with what I learned now? Is there a bigger picture here than what I thought? And here's what I'm going to promise you. Oftentimes, when we actually put the thing in context and understand it properly, the interpretation and the application for us is oftentimes so much better than what we had previously thought or invented for ourselves. And it helps us understand not just that verse, but the entire passage, the entire chapter, the entire book. And then when you have that in place, it helps us put together and understand better the entire Bible. So let's look first tonight at Philippians 4.13. I thought I'd start with just the, the most popular or perhaps the most infamous uh, passage. And most of you know this by heart, but I'm going to read it for you just in case. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Maybe the, your King James Version says, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. So our first question, if this is often taken out of context, is how is this verse often used? Anybody got any ideas? Any, any places you've seen this uh, put up there across something and said, uh, this is what this verse is intended to, to communicate? Where have you often seen? Did you say sports, Jennifer? Very good. That was my first one, too. Believe it or not, sports. I uh, heard the story one time, an uh, illustration probably, it was not a true story, but it might be. It's very understandable that it could be. You have a football game, uh, high school football is clearly very big in Texas, so you have a football game, and, uh, and before the game begins, you have one team in their locker room with their coach, and you have the other opposing team in their locker room with their coach. And both coaches firing up their team, getting them ready to come onto the field and play the best they can and try to win. They each want to win, right? And each coach claims for their team, Philippians 4.13. Opposing teams, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, says the Dumas Demons. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, says the Pampa Harvesters. I remembered that. See, aren't you proud? So, the age-old question the argument against the existence of God that says, is there a rock so big that God cannot move it? Or conundrum there that tries to trip up the existence of God. Uh, they framed this in the, the uh, conundrum of, is there a football team 
so created and great by Jesus that it cannot beat the other team so created and great by Jesus. Can Jesus defeat himself in a football game? Each team is claiming, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Which one's going to win? Well, thankfully, that is not what the verse was intended to communicate. It's not what the verse is intended to uh, apply to our Christian lives. So what does it mean? Let's begin to put this all together. The author of the Philippians, uh, the Philippian letter is Paul, the Apostle Paul, same one who wrote uh, the epistle to the Romans we're studying now on Sunday mornings. The audience, clearly the Philippian Christians, the church at Philippi, Christian believers in this real historical city of Philippi. Uh, This genre is pretty easy. It's an epistle or a letter. I, Paul, I'm writing to you, Philippians. Believe this, do this, don't do that. Love Paul, right? That, that's that's the, the, the formula of, of Paul's letters, and that's the genre into which Philippians fits. So what about the setting? Let's dig a little deeper in understanding what Philippians is. Philippians is one of four so-called prison epistles written by the Apostle Paul under house arrest in Rome sometime between the years A.D. 60 and A.D. 62, according to Acts 28. That's the setting. So think about that. The Apostle Paul, under house arrest, writing these so-called prison epistles, one of which is Philippians, into which we have Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So let's just do a little brief survey of the book of Philippians and see this main theme. The triumph of the gospel amid persecution, suffering, and trials. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn back to Philippians 1. I'm going to read these very quickly. So I just want you to, to look along. Um, if you highlight or underline your Bible, circle some key words that you see at the beginning to tie this all together. Uh, beginning in Philippians 1, verses 6 through 7. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Look down at verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to Paul, suffering, persecution, imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout all the imperial guard, guarding Paul, and to all the rest that my imprisonment, there's that word again, is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now look down at verses 20 through 21. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage... Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Look down at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but should also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All right, let's go on into chapter 2. You're seeing those themes, conflict, imprisonment, opponents, enemies, suffering for the gospel. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, look at these words, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Look down at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, Look down at verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, if I'm to be killed upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Now now chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may obtain, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I by any means possible may obtain the resurrection from the dead." Now, let's go to chapter 4 and begin to get closer to our our verse in question. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now look down at verses 10 through 13. This includes our verse. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, uh, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, whatever situation, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every, any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now let's look at verse 14 and then verse 19 as we close out this this look at the, the context. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Verse 19, my God will supply every, every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So what, what sort of themes did we see Paul unpack? Trials, 
imprisonment, hardship, suffering. But in the midst of that, he gives us the light of the gospel, doesn't he? That this is just serving to advance the gospel. That Christ will keep on doing the work that he's doing. And then we come to that part where he begins to talk about the peace of Christ, bringing our needs to God, being able to pray to him and receive that peace from him in whatever circumstance, high and low, hungry and full, rich or poor, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So with the whole context of the book in mind, especially the the local context there around Philippians 4.13, and now the whole book, let's move into interpretation and see how we can maybe take this off of you know, people trying to jump off buildings and fly and see what Paul actually meant by I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Number one, Paul is primarily, that's the key there, primarily speaking of himself. Remember, think about the author, his setting, his circumstances, his audience. I'm in prison, I'm in chains, I have been afflicted, I have suffered for the gospel. And so Paul is primarily, not only, but primarily writing about himself. And so as we see the things, the all things that Paul has had to endure, what are some of those things we saw? Prison, freedom, hungry, full, rich, poor, abounding, in need. In other words, Paul has experienced the whole spectrum of need and want in whatever capacity in his suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we go back to Philippians 4.11, and I think you see that coming up on verse 13, but just a few verses before, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation, whatever circumstance, Whatever hardship, whatever blessing, whatever peace, whatever turmoil, whatever need, whatever fulfillment. I have learned in every situation. You could say I have learned in all things to be content. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Contentment means being satisfied regardless of the circumstances. And Paul clearly is showing his satisfaction in Christ no matter where he is or what he's doing, even down to the point of life and death. Remember what he said? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way, I'm serving Jesus, I'm bringing glory to Jesus, and I get to be with Jesus. So how can Paul speak of such contentment even in the face of suffering and hardship? Well, he does so because he knows that Jesus will complete his work. Philippians 1.6. Jesus will advance his gospel. Philippians 1.12. Jesus will meet every need. That last part of chapter 4 there. No matter the circumstances, even in death itself. Because even in death, Paul sees a victory. Even in death, Paul sees it as gain because he gets to go be with Jesus. So the worst that you can do to Paul or any Christian is to kill the body. Martin Luther wrote, you know, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Paul understands that confidence and that assurance in the truth 
of God and the truth of the gospel. So even in death, Paul is confident because God is meeting his needs, God is his peace, and God is his satisfaction forever. Paul has strength in all things. Paul has strength in all things because of the strength of Christ within him. His only confidence is Christ alone. Heidelberg begins with that, doesn't it? In a shortened version, what is your only hope in life and death? That I belong to God. He will bring me to himself. He will bring glory to himself in me. That is my only hope. That's my only confidence is in Christ alone. So no matter what comes his way, Paul's only confidence is in Christ. So that in all things, no matter what happens, Paul is absolutely secure. So we have an important question to ask, though. Did y'all see this? Did I put this up? No? Did y'all get that? Okay. What is here for us? That's important, right? If we just look at the Bible and do the commentary work and do the studying and the research, and I, you know, we present the context and we present the interpretation, and then you know, see you later, that's been a great Bible study, and Bible studies are good for that. Context, history, putting it in place, going over the words, the vocabulary, what did the Bible say? But unless we take what it said or take what it meant then and apply it, take it away and try to obey something from it, we're not doing the whole picture. Okay? Bible studies are great. Uh, uh, Steve Lawson, one of my favorite preachers, he said that in his preaching class, when, when students would preach, he had a sign that, that would say, so what? And so as they were giving all their information and regurgitating all the research and all the commentaries and all the lexical work they did, he would slowly begin to raise up that sign, so what? You told me what it means, that's wonderful, now what do I do with it? How do I obey some principle from this? So you say, that's great for Paul, I can do all things, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens Paul, but what does that mean for me. How do I take that and apply it in context? Well, just like Paul, we are called and we are sent too. We talked about this Sunday morning, didn't we? Just as Paul is called as a capital A apostle, one sent, we are also sent with the gospel message of Jesus into the world. We are called to go and make disciples too. Just like Paul, we will probably experience suffering and hardship. Jesus says, they hated me, they will also hate you. Paul said at the beginning of this verse, not of this chapter, this, this book, not just for Paul, but for the Philippians. You've been called not only to belong to Christ, but to suffer for Christ. So just as Paul suffered, Christians throughout history have suffered, and you also know suffering and hardship. But just like Paul, our confidence is not based on our circumstances. So whether it's the highs or the lows, the abundance or the need, the hunger or the fullness, the poor or the riches, whatever it is that comes our way, our confidence is not in the circumstances, good or bad. Our confidence, just like Paul, is in Christ alone. Our confidence, more pointedly, chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, our only confidence. Paul says, I have all this good stuff I could bring up. 
I was a Pharisee. I kept the law. I was a good Jewish boy. I was circumcised. I did this. I did that. Paul says it's all garbage compared to knowing Jesus. So even bringing in all the good stuff that we experience is nothing compared to the confidence that we can have in knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. We can trust, number two, that Christ will finish his work, not just for Paul, not just for the Philippian Christians, but in you and me as well. He has given us his Holy Spirit as the down payment of the work that he's doing in us, and he will bring that work to completion. So with our confidence in Jesus and his resurrection, with our confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring that work to completion by his power and his grace and his mercy, we too can endure anything by his power. Whether hardships, suffering, sickness, health, abundance, whatever it is that comes our way as Christians, just like Paul, we are able by his power to endure and to persevere through anything that life, the devil, or even God in his sovereignty brings our way. Knowing that no matter what comes against us, Jesus will finish his work and we can endure all things. We are able to bring everything to him in prayer, Paul says, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, and we can know his perfect peace in all things. We have the power of God in Christ to do all things with joy, gladness, and hope. So I hope just at the end of this, this section, maybe it means a little more to you now uh, than, a, than a bumper sticker, I don't know, on the back of a car or or that, that you're quoting that to yourself before you go in for the interview. Now, there, there's, cert, there's certain applications there, for sure. And this isn't meant to, you know, pop your hand and say, you can't use it, you can't use it that way. But we have to also be careful to understand what it really means. I find that far more f- fulfilling than some sort of, you know, sort of hashtag slogan for my life and the things I want to do. It, that's great to think about it that way, but I find it far more encouraging to see that in life and in death, my confidence and my hope is in not my circumstances, but is in Christ alone. And by the power of his spirit, I can endure anything that comes at me because it's not about me or my power. It's about him and his power at work in me. All right, let's look at Matthew 7, verse 1. If Philippians 4.13 is the Christian's favorite verse to take out of context, I think that Matthew 7, verse 1 is the non-Christian's favorite verse to, to take out of context. Here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. So let's ask the same question we asked of Philippians 4, 13. How is this verse often used? Let's say by the world, by non-Christians. You can't tell me I'm wrong, right? You can't tell me my lifestyle is wrong. You can't tell me I'm a sinner, You can't tell me that what I'm doing is sin. You don't have any right to have any opinion about me whatsoever because Jesus said, don't judge. Judge not, lest you be judged. So let's do the same thing we did with Philippians. It's a little trickier for for the gospel, and I'll show you why. Uh, Let's do the same thing in putting the pieces together to see what Jesus intended. The author of this particular gospel is Matthew the evangelist, Matthew the disciple. And Matthew is recording here specifically the words of Jesus. So it's, it's kind of a, a both and. Matthew is the one writing as the author, 
but these are the words spoken by the Lord Jesus. So the audience is a little tricky too. I, I, I chose to go with Jesus' hearers. Uh, Matthew's audience is, many scholars believe, supposed to be primarily Jewish. Now it's for everybody, but many scholars believe Matthew was writing specifically and intentionally to a Jewish audience. And there's many way, reasons to believe that, and I think that's accurate, and there's some stuff here for that too. But let's stick with Jesus speaking and who Jesus is speaking to, or to whom Jesus is speaking. Say it the right way. Jesus' followers and religious leaders, the disciples, the crowds that were following him that were sympathetic to his message, those that might not have been sympathetic to him, and certainly those who hated him and the religious leaders. The genre of Matthew is gospel. It is historical narrative. It is a historical recording or recounting of things that happened. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to be in a more chronological order telling a story of Jesus' life and ministry, um, but that, that, that is the, the genre, history, narrative, gospel. But again, it's a little tricky because this is Jesus preaching. So while this is Matthew's recording of a historical sermon by Jesus, what we're reading is the teachings of Jesus in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And that takes us to our setting. Matthew is one of four gospels recounting the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus Christ. This particular passage is within the context of Jesus' teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So there's some basic historical narrative clues that tell us where we're going and what Jesus means. Now let's put some of the primary themes uh, around that passage in place. Jesus' intention in the Sermon on the Mount is to show what life in the kingdom of God is about. What it means to live in the kingdom of God. What it means to live as a follower of Jesus. And just like I did with Philippians, though we don't have to do the whole book of Matthew, let's just look at the surrounding um, portions of scripture uh, that get us up to uh, 7 verse 1. Look at chapter 4 of Matthew verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, follow me, be my disciples, I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat, their father, and followed Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Now look at the uh, same chapter, chapter 4, verse 23. He went throughout all, the Gal all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and he healing every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with very diseases and pains and oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we have two groups sort of coming together here, don't we? The disciples, as Jesus is calling them, and these crowds lured by Jesus' teaching and the signs and the miracles that are also following Jesus. And then we come into chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds... Those who were coming after him for his healing and for the signs and the miracles. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples 
came to him. Now it appears that as Jesus sees the crowds following him, it doesn't say this, but there seems to be this indication that Jesus is retreating from the crowds a little, and he is now calling his inner circle of disciples to come to him so that he may teach them. So although he is teaching with an earshot of the crowds, his intended audience is that close-knit group of those he has called to follow him. The crowds will come and go, depending on the signs and the miracles. You remember John chapter 6, he, he feeds the multitude, and verses later, they're all leaving. And Peter says, uh, or Jesus says to Peter, are you going to leave too? To who else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The disciples are there. They're the inner circle. They're there with Jesus. So there's a broad audience, and then there's the inner audience of the disciples that Jesus is speaking to. And now he begins to teach them what it means to follow him. Uh, this isn't in your notes. This is just for fun. That if, you're, if you're looking at sort of uh, the, the Gospels in the Old Testament, uh, many scholars, and I think rightly so, see a lot of parallels here between Jesus and Moses. Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain you know, to receive the law from God and give it to the people. Uh, Jesus ascends to the mountain, and he begins to speak as if he were God himself, the law. And we see that in some of the wording that Jesus says. He says, you have heard it said, he quotes Moses, but then he says, but I say to you, putting himself above Moses, you've heard it said this, now I say this. So Jesus appears as sort of this greater Moses with a new crowd going up on a mountain, receiving from God, and then delivering it to the people as if he were God himself. So all that kind of stuff is there. Jesus is a greater Moses. There's a greater law. And that brings us into the Beatitudes. In verses uh, 3 through 11, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure, Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And many see this as a sort of not reverse Ten Commandments, but whereas the Ten Commandments say do not, do not, do not, do, do not, the Beatitudes come and say, because you belong to me, this is what your life will look like. Uh, more than just duty and law, the law of Christ gives blessing and happiness not just duty and do's and don'ts but blessing and happiness happy are you if you do these things that's what the law of Christ gives to us but then he moves into sort of the negative part of his sermon and that is the problem of the heart we're not going to read this whole section I just want you to look at some of the headings in verses 21 through 26 Jesus deals with the topic of anger in verses 27 through 30, he deals with the topic of lust. In verses 31 through 37, he deals with the topic of commitment, whether in marriage and divorce or in giving oaths and keeping your word. Um, in verses 38 through 48, Jesus deals with how you treat your enemies or those who are against you and how you should not retaliate against them, but pray for them and love them. And then we come in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18 to these warnings against self-righteousness. So when it comes to giving, when it comes to praying, when it comes to fasting, not doing these things to be seen by other people, but doing them in secret so as to be rewarded by God. In chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, we see Jesus address greed, not storing up for yourself treasure on earth, but storing up treasure in heaven. 
And then chapter 6 ends, verses 25 through 34, with the topic of worry and anxiety and trusting God to take care of you. In all of these things, Jesus is pointing to our central problem as human beings, and that is the problem of our heart. He says uh, about anger, you've heard it say, said, do not commit murder. And if Jesus would have done a poll, how many of you committed murder? Maybe some would have raised their hands, but the Pharisees certainly, not the, not the religious leaders. But what does Jesus say? But if you have harbored anger in your heart, that is the seed of murder. It's there. He says, uh, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And if Jesus would have taken a poll, I haven't committed adultery, and Jesus turns it, doesn't he? But to lust after a woman or any person in your heart is the seed of adultery. It's there. And then he says the same thing about divorce and oaths and retaliation. You've heard it said, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I say, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. So I want you to notice that far from relaxing the law, Jesus isn't untying the shoelaces of the law here. He's making them tighter, isn't he? This isn't just about what you do outwardly, Pharisees, religious leaders. This is about the righteousness of your very heart. That's where the real problem is. So whereas people like to come into the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 7, verse 1, don't judge, as if to say that sin doesn't matter to God. This is the opposite of that. Sin matters infinitely to God. And Jesus reveals the reality and the seat of that problem in the human heart. So to the self-righteous religious leaders, Jesus is saying, your problem is deeper than your behavior and your efforts. Pharisees, Sadducees, your problem is deeper than your robes and your garments. To the followers, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 20, this is kind of shocking, chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What would the people have thought about that? They, they don't have the same view of the Pharisees that we do. They saw the religious leaders as holy. They saw them as the law keepers. They're the holy ones. We're the, we're the, the wretches here. They're the ones that keep the law. They're the holy and mighty ones. If anyone's getting into heaven, it's them. And Jesus tells his followers, I tell you what, unless your, your righteousness exceeds that of those people you consider to be the holy ones, you're not getting anywhere close to heaven. How shocking that would have been for the followers, for the disciples. And yet, what does Jesus say about the righteousness of those people? That this is more than mere behavior modification. This is more than just do's and don'ts. You have a problem here in your heart. And the point of Jesus' words is that you need a new heart that will produce this fruit of righteousness. And that new heart will not come by trying harder or doing better. The whole point is you can't do this. It will only come from the one who perfectly obeyed. Look what Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 17 here at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've not come to do away with God's laws, 
to throw out the Old Testament as if it doesn't matter anymore, as so many want to do to accommodate sinfulness. Jesus says, no, I've not come to throw it away. I've come to fulfill it. So how do we interpret this then? Matthew 7, verse 1, in light of all of that stuff. Number one, the religious leaders appeared to be righteous. The people viewed them as righteous. They certainly thought they were righteous. They appeared righteous. And so as those who appeared to be righteous, they set themselves up as the judge of others. We got all our junk together. I got the robes and the phylacteries, and I haven't lusted, and I haven't committed murder, and I haven't done these things. Here I am. I'm, I'm the judge of you poor, wretched, uh, commoner Israelites because I'm so righteous in and of myself. But Jesus reveals the problem here. It's not their behavior or their robes. It is their hearts. Their hearts were far from God. They thought they were righteous. They looked righteous. They appeared righteous. But their hearts were wicked. Jesus reveals here that if you're to know God, you must obey him from the heart. True knowledge and love for God is to know him through obedience and worship and devotion that comes not just from checking the boxes with our hearts far away, but with our very hearts transformed to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you're listening to that and thinking, that sounds impossible, I can't do that, you've got the point of the Sermon on the Mount. We are unable to do that ourselves. Anyone listening to Jesus would have thought, well, I'm an adulterer because I've lusted. I'm a liar. I break my oaths. I break my, my commitments. I'm a murderer because I've insulted people and harbored anger and hatred in my heart. What am I supposed to do? And that's exactly the point Jesus wants them to reach because they needed to see Jesus as the one who fulfilled the law. They must look to him who fulfilled the law of God. So when we come to Matthew 7, verse 1, let's just read it in context there. Judge not that you be not judged. Verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Doesn't stop there, though, does it? What does it say next? And then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. They needed to address their own hearts first. They needed to get to the root of the problem for them before presuming to judge or pronounce condemnation or someone else on someone else. They needed to understand that condemnation for their own sinfulness. But these religious leaders and some of the crowd rejected, ultimately, the one who fulfilled the law. And as people who rejected the fulfiller of the law, and they said, we can do it ourselves, they were unqualified then to speak for God. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You're supposed to be the teacher in Israel. And you don't understand these things? That's what he's saying to them. You don't understand the first principles of the law, religious leaders. You think you've got all the boxes checked and all the stuff done, but your hearts are far from God. So you're in no place to assert yourself over anyone else as a teacher, let alone a judge 
who pronounces condemnation on others because your hearts are just as wicked as theirs and you all need new hearts from this one who fulfills the law. They seemed to have a standard of righteousness. But they were frauds and hypocrites. And here's Jesus' word to them. You hear that there, don't you? Judge not, lest you be judged. Because remember, Pharisees and Sadducees, with the same measure that you judge, you will also be judged. They thought they had the standard, but they were hypocrites. But in the end, they will be judged by God's perfect standards. Those very things that they thought they upheld, the very things that they thought they could force on others while not obeying it in their hearts, God says, I will judge you according to those things. So what is here for us? If that is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to the self-righteous, to the hypocrites, you're in no place to condemn other people because you stand condemned yourself. It's, it's not that there is no condemnation or judgment or hell or wrath. Those things exist and they're real and they should be preached. The whole point for Jesus was you need to look at yourself first and understand your need first. So let's apply this then for us. You cannot help others with their sin until you have first dealt with your own sin. That's exactly what Jesus says, isn't it? How easy it is to say, here, let me get that speck out of your eye when you've got a big beam in your own eye. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He says, hey, take care of the beam in your eye and then help your brother or sister with the speck. Sin does matter to God. It is a big deal. And there will be judgment. And there is hell. And there is wrath with God. So the world that tries to use this verse to say, ah, you can't say what I'm doing is wrong because Jesus says don't judge. They're completely misunderstanding the verse and misapplying the verse. And the verse is actually much harsher on them than they think it is because they think they're in the place of sinlessness. And who are you to say I'm a sinner when that's the very point Jesus is making? You're all rotten sinners and you all need to repent and come to me as the one who fulfills the law. We need new hearts first. We need to receive new hearts for ourselves first. And then we can help others find the solution. And I want you to understand Jesus' point in this for you. Our message in preaching the gospel is not condemnation. It is the warning of condemnation. But the message of the gospel is good news. That there is hope so after we receive new hearts through faith in christ he gives us the new birth we come to faith and repentance in him we deal with that we're daily walking in repentance ourselves we go then and preach to the world that there is hell there is condemnation but that doesn't have to be the end for them there is hope through this one who fulfilled the law for us i don't have time to go into this too much but fruit matters Fruit matters. Jesus says in verses 15 through 20 that you can know a tree by its fruit. Pastor Zane talked about this a few Sundays ago. You, you know the tree by its fruit. It's there. Or he talked about it at baccalaureate, the fruit of the Spirit. It's there. The produce is there of where the roots are. 
And Jesus says, you better believe you can tell a tree by its fruit. And the church is called to discern fruit. The church cannot say you're saved and you're not saved based on behavior. But what the church can say is, brother, based on the fruit in your life or the lack of fruit in your life, it doesn't appear that you know God. We can't say that for, for, for certain, and we hope that you repent and come back, but based on the fruit right now, we can't say that. The church, Matthew 18, is called to discern and to discipline based on fruit. So there is judgment, there is discipline, there is calling out on sin, only while walking in repentance for ourselves. I love the quote often attributed to Martin Luther. It's kind of added to what Luther said on his deathbed. Luther said on his deathbed, we are all beggars, this is true. And some have sort of adapted that saying this way. We are beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. That is, that is all the message of the, the gospel is for Christians. It is not going to browbeat and to impose something or to force something down someone's throat, it is showing them the way. It is dealing with our sin. It is understanding our own condemnation apart from Christ. It is being renewed in our hearts and transformed by the gospel for ourselves and then going to tell the world there is judgment, there is condemnation, but there is also hope and life in Jesus. All right. I finish with four minutes to spare, so look at that. I'm going to pray for us, and we can go, okay, get home before part two hits here in a minute. The storm, not my sermon, all right. <laughs> we'll stick around, and we'll see. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for your people, your church here at First Baptist, and uh, thank you for a hunger for the word, and I ask that you would fill us all tonight uh, with a deeper hunger for your word by your Holy Spirit. Uh, I trust that you have uh, filled us with joy tonight as we look at these verses and passages and, and understand what you meant and what your, uh, your authors meant as you guided them by your Holy Spirit. We ask that we would be better students of the word, that we'd be better students of theology, that we would take these verses and words and concepts and look at them as you intended them and then take them by your Holy Spirit and apply them also to our lives. Bless us as we go, as we learn, as we grow, as we study for ourselves and bring us back here at the next appointed time to learn with your people from your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. That's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.